Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Well, hi there, everybody. Look terrible. Uh, let's see. It is the 23rd of September 2021, and this is episode, I believe, 88 of my live chat. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is my live chat that I do on, um, let's see here, on Morning Combat, um, it, which is a wonderful show that I do with Brian Campbell three times a week. In fact, we are back tomorrow at 11 a.m. to get you ready for all of the weekend's fights. But for now, give this video a thumbs up, hit subscribe. And uh, let's get this going. I'm assuming there's going to be a lot of UFC 266 talk on this. I don't know exactly, but we'll get to that and whatever else is on your mind. Plus, I have a big announcement. So when we're going to do the big announcement, we're going to do it right now after this opening stinger. And there we are. Okay, like and subscribe, like and subscribe, like and subscribe, like and subscribe at the time being let's pull up the questions i will get to this announcement because it is quite relevant uh and then we will get going um okay announcement time i feel like it's pretty big so we've been doing this here, let me turn this off we have been doing we've been doing this live chat well a long time in, in various stages and in various places since in one version or another since 2012 but um, I was doing it on my personal channel for a little while, and then we brought it over to MK to help MK get going. But MK has gotten going. Quite haven't reached all the benchmarks we want. Obviously, we have a long way to go with a lot of that stuff, but it's off to the races. So here's what we're going to do. The live chat continues next week, 3 p.m. in the East on Thursdays, but it's going back to my personal channel. So starting next week and then forever after that, uh, my live chat returns to my personal YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash Luke Thomas. It will be Thursdays at 3. If that if the crowd over there decides they want it at a different time, we can move it around. But for the time being, I'll probably keep it um, on the exact same day with the exact same time. right? So again, we can have a discussion if you want to put it at a, at a different day and different time later. But for now, we will keep the consistency. But, but its moonlighting phase over here on MK is coming to a close. This is the last episode where that will happen starting next week. It is back on my personal YouTube channel. I told you all donks, I told you all that I was going to get that going again, and I absolutely will. Uh, I already have, actually, but you know we, we're going to start kicking things into pretty high gear there uh, pretty soon. So, so there you have it. The live chat goes back to my personal channel, and uh, you might be asking, well, what is going to replace that if you're just taking it away? Well... We have some more surprises for you. I will either get to those tomorrow or we'll get to them on Monday. But don't think I'm just taking away content here, putting it on my YouTube channel, 
and then just leaving everyone here high and dry. We are actually bringing back, we're not bringing back, we're going to be starting up two new franchises exclusive to MK. Uh, and I think you're going to like them. I really, really do. I think it's, um, I think if you are a, if you're a real fight fan, I think you will really like what we've got cooking for you guys. So you can always watch my live chat on my personal YouTube channel from now on if you want to keep up with it, or if not, up to you. Um, but we are going to bring two new things on a weekly basis to MK to replace taking this away. And I will keep up with the live chat on my personal channel. Which, by the way, for folks who are asking, if it's going back to your personal channel, Luke, are you going to bring back the Super Chat? Yes, I am. That is coming back as well. Um, there's a lot of things we're going to have cooking. So, that's the first of one of many. And I cannot, I seriously cannot wait to tell you about what the replacement content is. Because I think you're going to like it. I think it's something that the MK channel has been missing. And we intend to fill that gap. So, there you go. Good news. It just moves back to where it came from, and then we bring brand new, more content on top of what we were doing already. And it's going to be new and kind of different. So there you have it. Um, before we get to the questions as well, you guys seem to like the, uh, I don't even know what you want to call it, the pregame we did with Chuck Mindenhall. If you like that kind of thing, leave a comment, let us know, share it around. The first one of them, it's conceptually a little bit confused, but there's a couple of lanes we want to go down. And if you guys like that, we're going to scale it. That means when we go on the road, we're going to pick someone else to do that with us, and we're going to do the exact same thing kind of with them. Fun, cool location, great conversation, a few great beverages, just kind of a fun thing that we hope Fight fans really appreciate. And so far, the, the, the response has been quite strong to the one that Chuck did. Obviously, there's only one Chuck Mendenhall. We'll bring him back as well. But um, it's definitely a thing that we want to scale. So uh, if you like it, let us know. All right? All right. Ready, team? Go. Let's get to these questions, shall we? <laughs> First question's funny. What is the worst thing BC has said where you actually thought you might get fired? Not going to lie, his hooker joke had me dying laughing. I can't remember which one the hooker joke was, but um, has he said anything that we thought I thought was going to get us fired? No, not like fired, but like you know, called to the principal's room for a little bit. Just and I've done it too. There's been a couple of jokes from like recorded things we've had to edit out. Um, some off-the-record stuff that should have always stayed off the record we had to edit out, but never like, you know, I'm actually worried about being fired, but am I actually worried about going down the road where, where we're, you know, internally getting in trouble for things? A couple times, a couple times. Uh, would the UFC accommodate a weight change like they did for Nick for anyone other than the Diaz brothers, Connor, Connor misspelled? Or Masvidal? The answer is probably not, but to catch folks up who may not know, Nick Diaz, around Tuesday or Wednesday, I don't know the exact timeline, um, hit up UFC and said, hey, can we do this fight with Robbie Lawler? That's in a matter of days. Can we do it at 185 pounds as opposed to 170 pounds? And everyone, including the UFC, said yes. They waited on Robbie Lawler's camp. His camp eventually agreed. And here we are. Would they have made that accommodation for anyone other than Nick the uh, Nate, Connor, and Masvidal. Probably almost no chance. In part because if you're a champion, you just can't, right? The champion must weigh in um, inside and you don't get the extra pound allowance limit. Uh, otherwise, the, the belt can't be on the line. So 
you can write all of them off. So now you're thinking about, okay, who's a non-titleist that they would do this for other than the Diaz brothers, Connor Mazzle. And of course, there's always going to be another example where someone like, you know, for example, this hack parast and hooker situation where they're flying from like opposite ends of the earth in the, in the worst way possible in the shortest notice possible to get here and fight. You could probably just wave that and fans won't care, but you're talking about what Nick did, which is like out of nowhere in the, out of the blue phone up UFC and was like, man, I don't ever like cutting his weight no more. Can we just not do this? Yeah. There's probably going to be an extremely narrow list of fighters they can do that for. Sean O'Malley has stated that he would rather fight cans, did he use that word, than tougher opponents because he still gets paid the same in his current contract. When negotiating his next contract, wouldn't the UFC have leverage to pay O'Malley less because he's only fought no names? Seems like he's doing himself a disservice. Well, not necessarily, right? Because, um, you know, if you look at the metrics that O'Malley pulls, whether it's, uh, the digital numbers in terms of what people are looking at when they watch his content or streams when he's competing on a prelim card to the extent that that's even relevant anymore or even on main cards you know to what extent does he for lack of a better description we can go back to the old Dana White Nate Diaz one to what extent does he move the needle O'Malley moves the needle quite visibly I mean if you any website editor will tell you that you post O'Malley content it does quite well perhaps not on par with some of the bigger names in the sport but for the names that he's fought, and he's fought some good names along the way for sure, um, and, and then lost one, of course, to Chito Vera, who's a very good fighter, um, he still moves the needle a lot. So I think that's really what's going to be any kind of leverage for him. It makes complete sense from his vantage point to not want to take, if I'm going to fight tougher guys, I want more money. It's the old Demetrius Johnson situation, right? When he was flyweight champion, his demand was pretty clear. I'm happy to go to 135, but you're going to pay me more to do it. UFC said, no, we're not. So he said, okay, fine. I'll just fight at 125 from now on or however long this lasts, which is exactly what he did. Um, and you could say that was a smart or a bad decision, but it was one he was quite comfortable with. I think in the end, most of these fighters overstate whatever uh, leverage they think they have. O'Malley's got a little bit by virtue of the popularity that he has amassed for himself he does have a very exciting fight style when he finishes guys it is fucking brutal for the most part like there's a lot of reasons why UFC would want to be in business with him I tend to think though like I keep going back to this people always bring up and I, I, your question is quite good I don't mean to um, attack the nature of it but just to say if you watch this live chat long enough or anybody's sort of Q&A or, or if you just sort of pay attention to how these questions are asked over time you begin to see, well, what about this person in this scenario? Could they make more money? What about this person in that scenario? Could they make more money there? And the answer is always going to be a little bit to some extent, yes, whether it's John Jones potentially asking for more under the various ways in which he gets paid on pay-per-view points and blah, 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 or it's Sean O'Malley who has elected to take easier uh, competition by virtue of the pay rate afforded him. In either case, they might be able to play with the margins a little bit. But, dude, the UFC stays under or at 20% for fighter pay for a reason. They've got a lot of this baked into formulas. They've got a lot of this baked into um, essentially just sort of a, a procedure by which they operate all of this. You might find individual cases that can, that can pull more um, relative to their peers for whatever reason... But at the same time, dude, like, <laughs> I can't overstate this. They, they had said in these projections that were laid out in these public documents, I keep going back to them because I keep finding people, like, 
most of the questions that I could answer for you, you guys can answer for yourself. I'm happy to do it for the most part, but like, I really can't more strongly encourage you to go look at these documents. They are quite literally explicit that they want to keep those costs of fighter pay at or below 20% as a fixed rate over time. It never goes above 20%. Dude, the only way you do that um, <laughs> is if you have a baked-in method by which uh, through each new contract you kind of have a pretty clear sense about how much it's going to go up or it's not. You do have cases like Masvidal where he's able to get pay-per-view points without having a title. There's probably a few cases like that. He is you know, certainly a special one. Um, O'Malley may have other methods by which he is getting money. And also, by the way, they, there, it looks like UFC is cutting them in a little bit more on deals in a way that they used to not. Um, it also, folks remember, uh, may not remember this, at the onset of the Reebok deal, you were not supposed to be able to wear any like other sponsor at any kind of UFC-related event or any kind of UFC filming or something. And even just Nick Diaz in the countdown videos was wearing his Game Up nutrition shirt. Game Up is his own company. Um, so they have relaxed certain features uh, about what they do, and I think that has probably raised the overall level of pay. But again, when it comes to their costs that they incur, they're keeping it at one in five or below every year. You can, f you can fiddle with the margins, but until that changes, nothing really changes. What does the UFC do with Shevchenko in the very likely event that she beats Lauren Murphy on Saturday? At this point, she has cleaned out any real threat in her division. And it seems like it could be difficult to continue marketing fights with opponents far below her level. Well, the answer, I think, would be that they will just do the Demetrius Johnson thing or the Daniel Cormier thing, which is in probably a little combo of both. Demetrius Johnson, again, he had sort of said, I want to, if I'm going to go to 135, you're going to pay me for it. UFC said, no, we're not. He said, okay, so I'll stay at 125. And dude, I, I, I really believe that what he did and St. Pierre did and what Silva did, um, and to a long extent, John Jones did, where you stand a post uh, at a weight class and you allow wave after challenger to attack you, I think that's actually much more difficult than having two good nights where you could capture two different belts in different weight classes, which is not to say one is easy and the other one hard they're both stupidly difficult but i do believe over time answering that call against those challengers even if they're sometimes seemingly overmatched is much more difficult you might see her do that to burnish her resume i also think that you know they're gonna probably try to make the amanda nunez fight nunez has close to no incentive to take it i don't think that she will um and i think that in her absence they'll just start booking her in 135 pound fights you might also see her get that 135 pound title and then try to be a champ champ in two weight classes simultaneously. I mean, it's not like Amanda Nunes is out there repping that 135-pound title pretty regularly. So um, that's what I think they might do with her. They're going to probably go all in. Now, that's not just assuming that she beats Lauren Murphy. That is assuming that she beats Lauren Murphy and has a continued streak of success for some time, which I don't think is the craziest thought. But, you know, folks asking, like, what are they going to do with her? Like, there's nobody left. Dude, there will always be somebody else standing up there that they can put in front of her. They've done, I've seen them do it. You know, when you live through like Anderson Silva versus Patrick Cote and, you know, um, Chil Sonnen had a big name, but that wasn't the toughest challenge for John Jones or Demetrius Johnson versus, you know, Ali Bagoutinov or something. Dude, they'll figure out a way. Trust me. That won't be that hard. The question is, how do you get her to that next level where um, she could be somebody big? And the answer is they're going to have to keep digging and find someone special who comes up along the path. 
Also, dude, you can look at what you want in that top 15 and be like, oh, she can beat everyone there. MMA changes like that. Like that. Where you just, in two years, dude, let's see what the picture looks like then. Which isn't to say she couldn't be a model of extraordinary consistency. I mean, if anybody can, she can. I'm just pointing out, it's very easy to look at the top 15 and be like, well, these don't have a chance. Dude, you don't know, A, what new names are going to come along, and B, you do not know, even if you think you do, you do not know who in that top 15 is going to start taking some real turns around the corner to get better. And Shevchenko will also eventually get old. It, it could be a while, to your point, where before you see a really interesting matchup if they don't do the Nunez trilogy. But if that doesn't work, they'll just find something else. Trust me. Who do you think has the power and technical striking advantage out of Chandler versus Gaethje? There's actually a follow-up to this one in the same question, but let me answer that one first. Depends what you mean. It's not like... Okay, so I'll say in the boxing, I think Chandler's probably a harder hitter. I would say in the kicking uh, distance of the game, Gaethje's probably a harder hitter. But if Chandler, and this is an if, if Chandler is a harder puncher, I don't think it's by a wide amount. Remember... You have seen Gaethje put people's lights out too with one or even yeah one shot like what did he do to Barboza, right? One shot hit or quitter. I mean he was probably hurt before the final shot that set him down, but it was one shot that set him down. Um, I do think Chandler's probably a little bit more of a harder hitter with his fists, but not significantly in Gaethje. I mean, do we need to talk about the leg kicks and everything else he does? He is just an absolute brute. With that, so overall, I might say Gaethje. Just in the boxing distance, I might say um, Chandler. Do you think Chandler's chain wrestling will come into play? Of course, he's going to. It, it, the striking will work in part by virtue of all of the salesmanship tricks that you do around it. Like with Dan Hooker, I have one on my personal channel going back and examining what happened with Dan Hooker. Uh, you have Chandler. Going to the body, going to the body, leaving his hand out there for a long amount of time, and then eyes glued down, which drew down the eyes of Dan Hooker, and then he goes upstairs. And part of that is some kind of a takedown threat. It's body work. It's a lot of combinations, um, or a lot of factors working in combination, I should say. But it's real. So do I think it will come into play chain wrestling? You mean like, do I think he will successfully score takedowns and keep them? That's a much harder thing to say. In fact, I tend to think he probably won't. But that he could make it a threat that opens up his striking a little bit more, that seems entirely in play. Or just a pure violent striking affair. That will be in play too. These guys are way more technical than they want to reputationally let on sometimes. I do think that they crave being respected as technicians when the time is right. But when the time is also right to be labeled as, you know the most exciting fighters in MMA, they also want that reputation that comes with being that, which can sometimes mean being wild. But both of them are very refined talents. Very refined. So I do think if it comes down to it, um, you probably will see some just crazy striking in between. But these guys know how to set traps. They're they're quite good. And, you know, they come from great camps that have molded them over time into something pretty spectacular. The one thing that does to me seem a more relevant consideration is durability. And Gaethje's will fade, but Gaethje seems to me like at this point, we think he's a little bit more durable than Chandler. Um, Chandler's had that issue with Primus where he got the dead foot from the nerve damage 
from being kicked. He's been dropped a few times. Um, just he's sort of shown damage in a way that Gaethje hasn't quite within the narrower time frames. Gaethje got, for example, dropped against um, Johnson, although he, he was able to come back. But even against like somebody like um, uh, Poirier, sort of took a while, right? And Poirier can fucking thump. So um, we'll see. Two quick hitters. Can Volkanovsky's footwork be the most important tool to give Ortega fits? Part of the most important tool. That, in conjunction with the camouflage. What Volkanovsky likes to do is a few things, but the basic idea in understanding his game, and this is basic. This is no way an advanced description. This is the basic way of understanding it. He wants to present to you a target, and as he presents, not a target, he wants to present to you a look. And in that look, by the way, he wants to do this at a relatively quick pace. And part of that is so, one, he can score a lot. And two, so that you have difficulty making a read about it, right? If, you're, if your amount of time you have is consistently narrowed beyond what you would like to be, and remember, he's splitting timing a lot, um, then it's just hard to make uh, a cognitive uh, an informed choice about things, right? You're with quite literally limited information. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to show up, give you a look, and make you either think it's something that it's not or simply just be unable to assess what you are looking at. Meanwhile, he then lands and goes. And then the process starts over. So footwork is absolutely critical to that kind of a game plan. But what is also critical to that kind of game plan is many other things, physical preparedness and, you know, cardiovascular conditioning and blah 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 I mean you, the list is on, goes on and on again this is a simple explanation but the other part of that is knowing what to look for and what or how to disguise that you, you, the, if, if Volkanovsky what's the difference between Volkanovsky just walking over and throwing whatever strike he eventually wants to throw but just going over and doing it versus what he actually does what's the difference the distance is off for, uh, when opponents get fooled the timing is off. The location is off. You know, when I say off, I mean relative to the opponent's expectations. He's, everyone, all of his opponents think it's going this way, and then he goes that way. Dude, I keep saying this. Everyone wants to go back and say that the Max fights are fraudulent, and they're not, but they're close. I mean, they're obviously quite close no matter which way you came down on. Dude, go to the one before that. Go to the one against Jose Aldo. Jose Aldo was like... I don't know what the fuck to do with this. He didn't get super beat up. He didn't get, you know, thrashed. It wasn't a beating by any stretch of the imagination. And if you want to dock him for that, then fine. Dock him for that. But, dude, go back and watch that. Jose Aldo could not figure out what the fuck he was looking at over 15 minutes. And Volkanovski just cruised to, a, frankly, a relatively easy decision in the process. Chad Mendes was able to score a nice shot on him, but then he got finished in the process for it. Dude, Volkanovski is a tough bastard. He comes right in front of you in ways where the angle might be interesting, the timing might be interesting. He gets you to look this way. He goes that way. He gets you to think high. He goes low or vice versa. It's all about misdirection and camouflage with timing and angles and setups. He's a tough nut to crack, dude. He's a very tough nut to crack. You don't see people land on him very clean very often. With the fight being postponed earlier this year, can that be beneficial for Ortega? Sure, of course. With extra time to train, does it help him improve his striking? 
Yes, but I'm not sure exactly what you mean by that. Or is the postponement duration not enough time to make any significant improvements? No, I think it probably can only help. I don't think it hurts. I mean, whether enough, whether it's enough to make the difference between winning and losing is almost impossible to say. But I don't think it hurts him exactly. This wasn't like that was the good time and now is the bad time. I don't know why now would be the bad time versus that being a better one. I, I tend to think that the more you can begin to sort of try to find patterns in this or uh, uh, some other way to like not even buy into that game plan, to take the fight to Volkanovsky and get him to react, to get him to think about what you're doing, to cut all that off, so to speak. Um, there's lots of ways you could potentially attack it. But I'm just saying the extra time probably only helped. I, I don't think it hurt at all. Do you remember when Nick Diaz was given a five-year suspension and we were beside ourselves at this injustice thinking this would single-handedly end his career? And then despite the suspension <laughs> and despite the suspension being overturned, he voluntarily takes a six and a half year layoff longer than if he had actually served. <laughs> His original suspension. Is this not the most Nick Diaz thing ever? You know, I really had to, never thought of it quite on those terms, but that is a great point. That is a great point. He is, um, for better or for worse, for comfort or for frustration, he is his own man. You know? Did you guys watch the interview with Brett Okamoto? That's a... That's a I'm not sure what to make of that interview. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to make of it. It, it. Some things I thought were misconstrued, um, blown up out of proportion, and there's some things that are like genuinely worrying. I don't know. We'll see. Luke, you've mentioned that you take a cocktail of meds to go to sleep at night. That's true. Do you believe the reason that you need to is due to genetics? Maybe. Lifestyle, for sure. Um, it's a lot of stress, mostly. Um, being unable to regulate going to sleep uh, at a consistent time is really the biggest problem. It's just constant stress. What is Colby's game plan ahead of his fight with Usman? The same thing that Colby did to Robbie Lawler. If that's what he could do to Kamaru Usman, you might be like, well, Robbie's totally different than Usman. Yes, I understand. You're asking about game plan. Game plan. He wants to overwhelm him with volume from pitter-patter strikes. Some might be hard. Most of them won't be, probably. Overwhelm him positionally. Overwhelm him with effort. Overwhelm him with workload. Overwhelm him with the physical commitment to the kind of fight it would be for him. Uh, that's what I think he wants to do. Standing at range with Usman, especially now, is pretty perilous, and he couldn't win the first way. Although, to his credit, remember the judges had it 1-3-3-1-2-2 heading into the fifth. Um so, you know, that back then that wasn't the worst game plan, but I think hindsight being 2020, you know, Gilbert Burns kind of sort of getting in his face a little bit. And uh, even Masvidal the first time around having some success too with some of the wrestling defensive stuff. Um, I think he's going to look to wrestle and I think he's going to look to put pace on him big time. Whether or not he will succeed, we shall see. But that's what I think for sure. Oh, here we go. How heartbreaking is Nick Diaz's honesty in the Okamoto interview? Heartbreaking. Is it heartbreaking? It's worrisome. It's worrisome. You get this sort of sense that he, Nick, is only doing this because the things he wanted to do, um, he feels like the rug was pulled out from under him or... Um, 
what else is he going to do to make this kind of money? Or, you know, would he live with regret if he didn't sort of see it through? Or, you know, there's a lot of reasons why he's doing it other than the fighting itself. Which, you know, understood that way is not at all uncommon. And you also have to recognize Nick is probably going to admit things most fighters won't, even if they feel that way. Nick is probably going to admit things most fighters won't, and those fighters, candidly, might be in a little bit of denial about how they feel about it, whereas Nick is not, and so he can bring articulation to these ideas and views when you may not ordinarily get that, even if it's actually much more common than you recognize. In fact, I tend to think there's a lot of that at play here still. It's not like he's committing to a love of accolades or a love of the game or a love of the process or I just... I really wanted to prove something through this. It's it's almost as if he's sort of viewed um, ambition in the fight game as a way to get maybe some of the best rewards he can, but simultaneously to mostly please others, not himself. It's a process he truly does not enjoy, and it's knowingly going to result in his own exploitation, but short of having a better option, here he is. I'll say this. Most 38-year-old fighters should not be saying that. If you wanted to say something like that a little closer to 30, like before you'd hit, let's say, let's say you're still working on your game or whatever, I think you could, you know, it's weird because here's a guy who had more to give seemingly and more opportunity to make money and then for various reasons chose not to. It's almost as if he's talking about someone the game never gave a shot to. Uh, and it maybe didn't give him one in the way which he had hoped. But, I mean, he made it a lot further than, you know, he's easily in the top 1% of fighters, right? In terms of, like, monetary reward, that kind of a thing. Um, he has a very tortured relationship with the fight game. And most people who have that kind of a tortured relationship usually bow out. Do you see YouTube political commentators running for Congress and Senate in the future, like how Larry Elder ran? Or do you think they are content with with their position in the political world? Well, it's hard to say, right? Because a lot of these political actors don't make a ton of money. Although, obviously, if you stick around long enough, you can usually convert that into big money, but if you're, first of all, it's a lot of work to do those jobs. I mean, Tito found that out. It's a very low level one. You're talking about sort of a federally elected position, but you know, you know, the zoning has to take place. Waste management is a thing that you have to worry about. Various forms of taxation need to be implemented. Like these are, it's a hard job and I don't think he was in any way prepared for it. Um, so there's, there's that part. The other part is it may not be as financially rewarding as whatever current gig they have. I do think you'll see the crossover into various forms of activism on either side. Um, But for office, I mean, Larry Elder's problem was that he was sort of this de facto candidate for, and it's almost this face to an extent of the recall, but he was in a blue state. And once the folks who leaned to the blue side in the blue state heard about some of the things he was offering as a method of um, managing affairs, he was easily overrun in the end. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of dislike even on the left of Gavin Newsom, but Larry Elder was so odious 
that they couldn't tolerate. I remember him years ago, and he was much more mild, and he was the host of Moral Court. You guys remember that? He had a show called Moral Court. Um, I even read one of his books years ago, like in college, a long time ago, when he was sort of more of a libertarian type versus what he had to end up being, which is to really get one of those audiences on either side, quite frankly, to do this. There's a little bit of extreme positions that one has to maintain. Um, I mean, that's right. That's sort of part of how those identities work that make them electorally um, a little more difficult to achieve your ends. Luke, in a situation like next month's UFC 267 card, where it's not a paid pay-per-view, will Blahovich and Sterling lose out on their part of the pay-per-view buys, or will the UFC compensate them fairly just based on the amount of people who watch that event? And my guess is it's they probably will not. Um, they're my, I'm speaking out of turn. My, my guess is that whatever's in the contract, they're just going to get. I mean, I've heard many times about fighters who, um, you know, on big cards with big names, including title fights. And I mean, that's how Demetrius Johnson got paid, right? He had a flat fee. I don't think he got, I think he rejected points if memory serves. Um, so there's that there might be a way where they get compensated. Um, but I tend to think that the answer is, I don't know. I'll, I, cause I don't want to speak out of turn. I have seen other similar situations where, um, it, there was no effort made by UFC to make up any kind of perceived difference. That's what I can say. Why is Western MMA media so obsessed with one championship's financials when they barely bother to cover the fights that one puts on? This is a really interesting question, and it, gets, it speaks to a lot about, uh, I think, the current state of MMA fandom. Like, there's just a lot of expectations for MMA media to be, like, a professional fan. Like, it, and this is true of both from fans and fighters. Like, they just sort of expect media members to have a certain level of, you know, are you sufficiently reverent of everyone here? Like, you don't need to be reverent of any of them to do the job, quite frankly. I think many of us are, but that's not a requirement. It wouldn't be anything I would ever look at on a resume before hiring anyone. I can tell you that right up front. So that's a weird thing. The other one is like, why don't, like, do you think that in covering one's financials that they're making a lot of money on clicks? I guarantee you those articles are up there with some of the worst that perform, or at least um, that's a little strong. Those are not ever going to be the reason that Bloody Elbow or any other place makes money off of um, traffic ever. You will, if in fact, if you had a site devoted just to that, you would go out of business like that. So why are they covering it? They're covering it because a lot of reasons. Most MMA financial information is not readily available. How would you get information about Bellator's financials other than what the commission disclosed or what might come through a Viacom disclosure, which even then would have lots of different layers of protections from what they would have to um, share about the financials of Bellator? It's almost impossible to get. 
Same with UFC. There are some things you can learn. Again, the court case has been extremely helpful, but like, you know, month to month finances in 2021 are going to be extremely difficult to come by. So that has impacted the reporting as well. That is not the case with one. It turns out they can actually have a shitload of information that can be quite valuable to understand things. Why might you want to understand them? Well, for a lot of reasons. One is, what is the health of large MMA organizations in Asia? How do they perform? What do they look like? What kind of money do they get to bring in? What kind of money are they spending? Like It would just tell you about the state of the economy over there, the MMA economy, I should say, and the state of some of the larger players. Like Knowing that information is, to me, valuable. It may not be valuable to the average fan, but to me, it's, it's quite valuable. More to the point, when it doesn't in any way match what the organization says, that should be a red flag in your mind. Let's be fucking clear about it. Nothing that one ever publicly says ever matches the financial reality that the documents show. That is a red flag. And when they have other issues like, hey, we've solved weight cutting or we're going to have water testing, whatever the fuck that's supposed to be. It's a, it's a non-thing. That is also a red flag. And that should also tell you about ways in which they might treat fighters that go undetected or any any other issue that could be uh, involved between the relationship of fighters to management is now in play because you have a demonstrated record of there being a gap between two things that can actually be pretty important as it relates to their fights um i don't know i tend i've, I've been very clear on this chat i tend to think that their product is great i actually really like it um but that's a decision for editors to make about to what extent does our audience care? To what extent are these fights relevant? To what extent um, do we have the, the internal resources to cover this kind of thing? Is it behind a paywall? Is it not? Those are all complicated series of choices that editors over time have to make. But if you're asking why are they doing it, there's a ton of good reasons, not least of which is they have access to information that is otherwise shielded from them due to various corporate structures here in North America and in other places. And we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars that go out. And again, does not match what anyone in the company ever publicly says. Dude, that's a story. That's an ongoing story. And that's one worth paying attention to. And if I was doing business with a company that could not be candid about what the record showed or in any way ever decided to address them beyond vague assurances to not believe fake news, boy, I would, I would really, I would have to think twice about that, wouldn't I? I mean, <laughs> it, there's very good reasons for this. The last thing I'd say is, dude, I mean, part of this gets lost in the role that MMA media is supposed to play. They're supposed to be watchdogs, you know, and very few companies ever put any media company or any media outlet or various reporters inside of MMA to actually do some of that. In fact, it's not a coincidence that John Nash, who does some of the best work on this, a, has a sort of a singular focus on this, like he doesn't do fight recaps, number one. And number two, is in no way ever interested in UFC credentials or having any kind of embedded uh, status within the sport because otherwise you would just get bounced from it. But if you start from a position where you don't care about that, it just sort of frees you to do this kind of important work. Frankly, I'm going to reread that question in my mind as a different way of you being grateful that somebody would take the time to do something like this. If as a fan... You don't really care because what you're just trying to do is see fights. I, I honestly understand that perspective. Then, then, then don't then don't pay attention to it. But if you're asking like what would be the importance of something like this, the importance would be uh, significant, quite significant.
I started watching MMA after Nick Diaz's departure. Can you talk about what it was like when he was still fighting? Was there always a big anticipation energy? Um, not always. It took time, but yes. And what was he like? I just watched his interview with Brett Okamoto. Was he always like this? He was like a bit of a precursor to Tony Ferguson where he would have these like... I remember when he was with Pro Elite and he would do these interviews with Ariel. They'd be long and rambling and weird, but like totally different. And then he would go out there and have this, you know, unusual, semi-unusual fighting style, but it was action-oriented and it was fucking good. Um, Tony's a little bit more high-intensity energy, but it was a little bit like that. It was a little bit like that. But also, we did a resume review. Do you expect Cyril Gaon to be as strong as he was in the clinch? You mean like at any point in the future? Oh, you mean with Francis. Okay. Derek Lewis is a large individual and he seemed to control him pretty easily. How well do you think he can control someone as strong as Francis in the clinch and on the ground? Um, well, mastery of the clinch position can be obviously very physically aided by what kind of an athlete you are. Not just in terms of your overall strength and explosivity, but uh, potentially body type. How long various limbs and fulcrums are and whatnot. That can play a pretty significant role. But let's explain something here very quickly. The clinch is a position. And because it is a position, that means it can be mastered. And if it can be mastered... That means it has a series of extremely important details that go into making it what it is. If you have never locked up with somebody who was a talented operator in the clinch in terms of turning opponents, off-balancing opponents, um, misdirecting them with strikes as they get turned and off-balanced, you have no idea what you're up against. I have gone up against people just playing around in the gym who, you know, were in good shape but didn't look like bruisers or anything, and they were fucking Hercules in the clinch. In fact, there's old interviews of Rich Franklin talking about Anderson Silva. So why did he go to the clinch so easily in their, I think it was their first fight he did that, whatever fight it was, first or second. What he had said was that they thought that was going to be a position of strength for them, that in, in previous iterations and fights where he had been locked in the clinch, he was the one bossing people around. In training, he was the one off-balancing, turning, pushing, pulling, really just controlling these other people. Um, and then he got up to Silva, and he realized he wasn't even close to being the dominant guy in that position that he thought he was. I mean, yes, he had those wins over other guys, and they were legitimate, but against Silva, it did him no good. Dude, Silva's not going to out-bench press a guy like Rich Franklin. He's not going to squat more. He's not going to deadlift more, even though he has long-ass long, long ass arms. Dude, Rich is a stronger athlete. So why didn't that work in the clinch? Dude, because it's a position of technique. Strength matters, of course, but you know you got to have a feel for the position and balance in there. And again, it's always about disrupting the stability and order of it for your opponent to bend them and turn them, to push them and pull them, to drive them one way and make them go another and to make them resist by stepping their weight and then going into another place with it. It's all about that. And the guys who are really good at it, you feel like a piece of clothes trapped in a laundry, uh, you know, the, the, the tombola, whatever it is, the, um, the rotating thing inside of a, a dryer just 
and you the, the it just keeps going and it never ends. It's disorienting. It hurts because you 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 know you're getting pulled down constantly and you're just at the mercy of of you know the, it's like being trapped in with undertow. You know, and you're getting pulled and you're trying to swim your way out of it. You're not going to beat that. You know, that's what it's like. So so. You know, I'm not saying Cyril Gaon is as good in the clinch as an operator as Anderson, or maybe he's better. I'm not here to compare them per se, just to give you an illustrative example of what this can look like. But Derek Lewis being bigger and stronger overall, it's sort of an aggregate athletic sense, maybe we can argue. Maybe that's not even true, but let's say that it is. Doesn't matter. It's not relevant if someone is also sufficiently strong and a, an expert operator from this position. If you have that, you know, you can put in the world's strongest man. They're gonna get, they're gonna get, they're gonna get pulled and turned and off balanced and hurt. Would you do a resume review for, G for GSP? Sure. Luke, we live in a weird time. If the fight happens, what fatality does Mighty Mouse use on Rod Tang? When they get to the MMA round, take them down, choke them out, something like that. I don't know. Some weird questions in here. I might save these for when we go to the uh, to my personal channel. Um. Should Robbie get a percentage of Nick's purse for not making the originally agreed weight? I do think he should. I do think he should, yes. If you're punting it because you don't want to make weight, but you do it ahead of time, that's fine. But in principle, to me, that's tantamount to almost... It's not quite tantamount, but it's pretty close to just not making weight. So... Did you see Don Madge, the South African, has left UFC to head to PFL? I did see that. I, I was very surprised by that. He has not had a fight in years. What do you think of the switch? I was sad to see it. Don Madge is a good fighter with great striking. He had a ton of promise. I'm, I'm, I'm going to pull up his record here. Let's see. Uh, let's see. God, depressing. All right, Don Madge, Magic Man. All right, undefeated in UFC over the course course of two fights, he beat T, T Edwards. You guys remember him? This dude came out of the uh, Contender Series looking like a million bucks, and uh, he got finished in inside of two, and then he fought um, Fares Yam with a decision win over him. Then he was supposed to fight Megaman Mustafaev, canceled bout. Then he was supposed to fight Goram Kutaladze, or whatever the fuck his name is, canceled bout. Then he was supposed to fight Nasrak Hakprast, canceled bout. Then they went back to Goram, canceled bout. And so I guess the UFC just kind of let him walk. And uh, he's very talented. He's a really, really, really good fighter. I like him a lot. I think very highly of him. I guess he went to PFL. I don't know if Bellator wanted him. I don't know what the situation was. Um... I, yeah, I'll probably have to talk to him and see. What, I, I, mean, I think it's all immigration related and visa related. Um, 
I would love to see what the situation is now, but he's he should I don't know yeah, I don't know what tournament he's gonna be entering in, but I would put him as somewhat to spotlight to potentially win it. He is very talented and a very good striker. If Hooker can't win on Saturday, you mean if Hooker doesn't win? What, do you, what does it mean to say Hooker can't win? I don't even know what that means. Like, it's like literally not possible for him to win? Or are you saying if he ends up not winning, should he consider a, <clears throat> a move to 170? No, I don't think so. I don't think he's big enough for 170. I'm not sure what he would do at that point. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg... This is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Please consider doing a Volk Ortega breakdown dissected if we see more than two rounds. Hard to imagine it would be a boring fight. I actually think there's a pretty decent chance it could be boring. Now, it could be very action-packed. It really all depends on Ortega. But if if you think that there's not a way this can be boring, I would strongly caution you against that. If Volkanovski is cooking, but not cooking so much that he can get this huge lead on Ortega, um, so the sort of thing he did to Max in the first fight, why wouldn't that be boring? very well could be boring. But if Ortega can just read him a mile away and can tune him up and he's got to resort to this, that, and the other and Ortega's busting him up and it's fun, like that could be phenomenal. Like That could be really good. I, 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 how it goes, your guess is certainly literally, quite literally just as good, if not meaningfully better than mine. But when you say hard to imagine it could be boring, ooh, not for me. I think there's actually... You know, whenever someone fights, there could be always a million permutations, an infinite number of permutations about the way it could go. But some are always going to be more likely than others. I would put the likelihood of this being boring. Um, I don't know if it's the likeliest possibility, but like, is it high relative to other permutations? Yes, it's high. <laughs> Can you do a Luke no cells BC counter at the bottom like you have for the BC 90s reference counter before? I love the awkwardness. I, it's already asking a lot for folks to get the BC counter for the 90s stuff. I think adding another one doesn't do us many favors. Um, does Devin Clark shoulder the burden of medical bills for his bad mouth injury? How does UFC health insurance work? So my understanding is um, it happened during the course of the fight, which is going to make any of the immediate and then I think most of the ongoing repairs for Devin strictly the responsibility of the UFC. Like, I don't think he's going to come out of pocket for any of that. The only part that I don't understand how it works is when it becomes any kind of potential long-term burden. So we had Tim Sylvia, who got his arm broken against Frank Mir. Um, one of, actually, if you've never seen it, it's one of the best refing jobs you'll ever see Herb Dean do. Very good job. Uh, because you had Tim with his arm out, and then he's pulling away, and it doesn't break here at the fulcrum, it breaks here at the middle, and it doesn't shoot through the skin, but in slow motion, you can see the bone pop. But in real time, it was actually kind of hard to see. 
Herb saw it and stopped it immediately. And, and Tim was like, I'm fine. I want to keep going. Meanwhile, his arm is like completely broken. Obviously, all of that was paid for um, and during his reign and everything by UFC. It, it was after the fact that he was trying to file a worker's comp claim against UFC. It didn't go anywhere. And the screws that were in his arm were uh, getting infected and actually coming out slowly. He was having to pour hydrogen peroxide on them. So he went to GoFundMe to get it fixed. There becomes a point where it no longer becomes the UFC's responsibility. If you're asking about like when he went to the doctor and they surgeried him up and everything else and how that will be, yes, all of that is entirely covered by UFC um, and then some. And you know, and it should be noted at times they will, they will um, look at this. Look at the spam calls that I get. Ready? <laughs> Department of Justice. I mean, what are we doing? Hey, look at this Department of Justice. Just want to tell you that uh, if you don't pay us like 500 bucks right now over Venmo, then you're going to go to jail for, uh, what's he going to jail for? Uh, college loan theft. I don't have any college loans. You know. Am I surprised how well Real Madrid are doing this season? A little. A little. Kareem Benzema is playing out of his mind. And uh, Kamavinga is a beast. Vinny seems to have turned a corner. Vinicius Jr. Uh, Rodrigo is quite good. Asensio just had a hat trick. I think Isco scored as well. Granted, it was against, you know, a nub-ass team. But... Actually, what worries me is not their offense. They seem to be like an offensive juggernaut, if anything. We'll see about what happens to Azard, but uh, it's their defense. Militao, you know, they lost Varane. They lost um, Carvajal's um, injured. They lost Ramos. You know, they, they granted they picked up some other names along the way. Alaba is great, but um, they still got some issues in the back for sure. Most underrated, underappreciated Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Oof. Man, that's a tough one. Most underrated, underappreciated. I'm going to say... Um, just in terms of, like, the respect that it gets. You know what? I need to leave. Dude, I play with Chrome when I um, stream now. It, like, jacks up my computer. Hang on. I think I, this is the name of it. I want to make sure I got the name. I saw this when I was on... Uh, oh, I'd seen it years ago, but then I saw it again during the... Uh, what you call it? During the pandemic. Red Heat. Red Heat's a de decent one for action movies. He plays a Soviet soldier who works with uh, Jim Belushi you know, in Chicago, and they have to kind of, you know, it's a buddy cop thing. It's good. Will fighter coach interviews ever be added to audio? Would love to have the interviews be available on podcast app. I think that they want to. You're asking about like when BC or whoever us, we interview someone, obviously it's usually BC who does the interviewing. Would those that then get converted over to um, audio in the, in the podcast feed? I think that they want to do that. I don't know exactly how they want to do that because sometimes they'll have like three interviews in a day. I don't think they want to pump out all three. 
but I do know that there are cases where they want to do that. So we'll see. Um, I did not hear what Teddy Atlas had to say about Showtime. They said they make boring main events, don't match make fights properly. I'd have to hear what he had to say. Um, also, you know, I think you can make criticism of any promoter in any broadcast situation. None of them are perfect, including Showtime. But, you know, what they've done for the 122 division in the boxing side of things, uh, pretty legit. Have Dana White, and this is a good question, have Dana White and the UFC finally got rid of the so-called MMA reporters that may challenge him on unpopular topics like fighter pay and kept the yes-men around? And this person includes John Morgan and Schmo as yes men. You know, I don't, I don't know that I necessarily share that characterization. But what I would say is, um, yeah, I think to a large extent, um, the game has changed a little bit, which I'll explain in a second. But yeah, I think that there's a lot of people who realize, and I, me included, although I, I tend to get myself in trouble still a little bit. But um, listen. You can blame Dana White and the UFC for this, and for sure they have undercut reporters who have done things that they don't like. Um, you know, we don't have to go very far looking at Jon Snowden or Josh Gross or Loretta Hunt, or even to this day, obviously Ariel's had a lot of struggles with him as well. I seem to have not had as many of them, but I don't, you know, from day one, I never, the only thing I've ever asked of them was the occasional credential, and even then I do that pretty, I think I, I've been to, what, one UFC show this year? Two? Maybe? I, I went to the one in July... That's it. That's the only one I've been to. And the one before that was uh, when Trump was at the BMF fight. Like, I don't go very often. And I, I don't stay very often. Like, they don't I, don't... I don't really need to go to those things for the most part. I mean, you know, my work wants to send me, but I don't really... It doesn't... You guys know my view. Like, I want to have a world where if everyone takes everything away from me, they can only take the minimalist of things because... I still have control over all these other parts. So I've always operated that way, and, and I don't live with the same kind of worries I think that some of my peers might um, who have had some issues with that. But, you know, do I think that... I mean, the problem... Understand the problem here, the real problem. The real problem is not UFC. Although, again, you know, we, we can sort of point to a history of pressure that they've put on various media institutions. The problem is the media institutions, Make that very clear. Because whatever the organization want, this one, by the way, Strike Force, when they were back around, I can't tell you how many angry, irate calls I used to get from them, them being fucking super pissed at my coverage. Like, UFC ain't the only one. Obviously, now they're a much bigger player than they ever were, and they're the biggest player in the space. But here is my point. Dude, they don't hire mo the overwhelming majority of people they do not hire to do, like, actual hard-hitting fucking journalism. We're like, we're going to find out what these managers have done. We're going to find out, you know, and we're going to print the most unflattering things like real adversarial shit. Like, that doesn't exist. They're not, they're not hired for that. They're hired to cover the sport nominally, um, keep up with what's happening with the fights and blah, 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 blah. And, uh, you know, everyone reaches sort of this happy little ecosystem. That's what... They, if they're... You know, understand something. If you're going to have... If you're, if you're a media institution and you're going to hire combat sports reporters, you need them to have a return on your investment, right? So they have to generate enough traffic and or, you know, ad dollars or whatever. They have to make it worth the while. 
Um, it's not like where it used to be where we're going to just have, as a newspaper, we're going to have a bureau chief in Moscow and we'll afford it by selling classified ads and so we can make this journalistic mission about what it needs to be, not about what we can reasonably afford. That calculus doesn't exist anymore. The common calculus is, um, hey, we're going to hire these people. They need to be generating the kinds of things that, um, you know, we want the kinds of returns we want to see financially and otherwise. And so... Um, it's why I think you've seen a turn towards personality-driven stuff, which, by the way, I've done. I'm, I've done almost all of that. Um, it's why I think you've seen a turn towards... Um, some of them have been less spoken out. I think you can still be spoken or outspoken without too much of an issue. But just to be clear, dude, this starts with what they are empowered to do. They are not there empowered to, for the most part. There are exceptions everywhere, great ones, and they do great work, but... In general, in general, they are not hired to to do journalism in the way that you might imagine, to challenge Dana or whatever. They're hired to sort of uh, make yourself go to shows or whatever it is that you do. Usually it typically involves going to shows enough that you can collect um, videos and interviews and stories enough such that it's worth our while to send you there and for you to maintain employment. If you ruffle feathers to the point where you can't do that, um, you're not, you know, unless you have some giant following, what use are you of them? Uh, why would they even have a combat sports department for that? So it all starts with them. And, and if any institution out there, boxing or otherwise, puts pressure on the media outlet, you'll see the media outlet, I've, I've just lived through this, I've seen them bend like that under the slightest bit of pressure because they're not really hiring you man they're not hiring you for the most part again there are exceptions but for the most part they're not hiring you to you know oh uh, the work is about what the work is no the work is about the return on the work the work is about you know and and the, you might be like well why don't they face some of those same pressures in other leagues well one the nba is just not and again, the UFC is a lot better than it used to be, but the NBA is not really all that hard up about criticism in the same way. They don't really care, I don't think, to the same degree. Individual teams might, but the league as such doesn't. There's there's mandatory protections for some of the media in there. And also, dude, the game is so much bigger, and NFL, for example, is so much bigger. Where, By the way, you get plenty of conflicts of interest there, too. I mean, don't think it's some bastion of journalism, but... The point being is, like, it's a lot easier to get a return on covering the NBA than it is in combat sports. It's just a lot easier. It's significantly easier. And so you can have a little bit more. But, like, if the league – this is what people don't realize. If the NBA came down and started hammering people, I guess there'd be blowback and it would be a little too hard to do. But in theory, do I think that almost any – almost, not everyone, but almost any media institution would bend to accommodate the league? I do. They just don't. And UFC has, over time, uh, exerted some pressure for coverage they didn't like. And I think the media institutions took their heels and went, you know, snapped them together as quick as they could. I'm trying to fix... Here we go. Great question. What is the best way for Bellator to leverage Yoel's remaining years of competition? Boy, I got to tell you, I said this on Morning Combat, I'll say it here. I don't really understand at all. Um, I don't understand what happened there with that fight. I mean, I'm not knocking it in the sense that 
you if you're Bellator, you gave yourself a chance to um you know, they put on a legitimate fight. That's a real fight, dude. That's a very tough fight. Like they didn't give they didn't do any favors for Yoel whatsoever. Like they gave him they gave him maybe the worst matchup possible, candidly. You know, they gave it to him for three rounds as opposed to five, and they gave him maybe a, a guy who's taken hardly any damage and is maybe just one of the best managers of risk in modern MMA. Like, dude, Phil Davis has losses. Okay, he's not the best fighter, but he's never been stopped, never been head kicked, knockout, never been punched his lights out, never been submitted. They can only take this guy to the judges and ask the judges to weigh in on it. Like, dude, that's very hard to do if you look at who he has fought. Very, very hard to do. He has not fought chumps. He's fought very good fighters in UFC and in Bellator. Um, and they gave him that guy for his first fight. Dude, that's, you know, you can like, okay, so let's talk about the good parts of that call. One, that's just a very relevant 205-pound fight. That's a great way to see exactly where Yoel is at. And it's, if you're interested in the Phil Davis business, that built him up probably in the biggest way that any fight has recently. Phil was extraordinarily forgotten for, I think, a long time here, for the last three, four years. I don't think folks have necessarily been paying attention to what he was doing. Boy, they're paying attention now. That was a big one, you know? So there's there's some good sides to that. So, like, if folks are like, oh, well, you you know, the Beltor only puts together, you know, um, uh, easy fights for folks to win. I mean, they didn't do that shit there whatsoever. On the downside, though, this is the part that I don't understand. It's like, dude, you gave him easily the toughest fight you probably... I mean, Nemkov would be a tougher fight in the sense that I think Nemkov's their best talent. But in terms of, like, frustrating Yoel into not being able to do a whole lot because, you know, Nemkov will slug it out with you in a way that Phil probably won't. Um, so you gave him arguably the toughest fight he could have had at age 43-44 up a weight class so that he not only had, like, a tough time winning, he had a tough time even looking good. Like, dude, people don't really look that... I mean, Nemkov beat him, but Nemkov didn't, like, look awesome doing it. Um, why would you do that for a guy who's a fan favorite, who probably has a relatively short shelf life, who needed uh, maybe a bit of a softer landing after all this time off due to injury and the pandemic and everything else? I didn't understand that, frankly. Uh, I've said as much, I'll say it again. I, don't, I didn't understand that matchmaking. I thought that was the wrong choice for his first fight back. I felt like with, if you want your organization to have credibility, eventually you got to put on those... Yoel versus Phil fights, right? You got to have the credibility that we challenge people here rightly against the some of the world's best. But I think for a guy like Yoel, you have to soft pedal it, especially given the time off to get something of a bit of a tune-up. I would have had him fight Anglicus, and then the winner of that um, maybe goes on, right? Or or just somebody he could beat, quite frankly. Um, and I don't think the fans would have minded. I think that they would have roared in approval over some kind of dramatic stoppage win he may have gotten. Um, because now it's, I guess you can go back to that. That's certainly not off the table. But now he started Bellator on the back foot in a pretty big way. Like, he didn't just lose. He got taken down five times. If you're trying to promote someone that people should be excited about, that was not the way to do it, I don't think. That's my opinion. I don't work for Bellator. I don't run Bellator. I don't. They don't ask me my opinion. Let me, let me be very clear about that, but I didn't get that at all. I thought they made a mistake with that.
<laughs> How do you feel about Dana talking mad-ish on Showtime? Is this due to Showtime working with Jake Paul or working with Bellator? Yeah, I mean, it's probably all of the above, right? So, you know, he was complaining that there wasn't security for the plant versus uh, Canelo face-off when they started, which he's right. I mean, there should have been. I think it's pretty fair. By the way, people kill on Jimmy Lennon Jr. for that. It's like, dude, what do you want Jimmy to do? Like, Jimmy's, Jimmy is, you know... A little bit older. Uh, he's in great shape, but he's a little bit older, and he's the fucking ring announcer. Like, why is he going to get in the middle of two guys? And there was a, a lectern in front of him anyway. So, okay, yeah, there should have been someone there. That's fine. But, A, UFC has made that mistake previously, um, before. And, you know, more to the point, um, listen, he, Dana White, and I think uh, Steven Espinosa, who is sort of the head of sports over at Showtime, have had something of a... You know, adversarial relationship since Mayweather McGregor, even you know McGregor himself having an adversarial relationship with Steven Espinosa. I think that it's just all part of that. Partly, you know, they're airing Bellator, which is technically on some level competition for UFC. I think they're airing um, boxing, which is not so much competition for UFC, but you know, another player in the combat sports space. They had this previous history together where they kind of butted heads a little bit. They had a bit of a you know that they again there should have been security there. I think we can all agree at this point after the fact. Um, so, you know, any chance to kind of stick it to, you know, are they rivals? They One's a television network and one isn't. But, you know, other players in the space who are doing similar things, who, you know, you want to make sure that everyone knows that you've got the one up on them kind of a thing. It's I, I think it's to be expected. And I think as long as Showtime is doing relevant things, you'll hear them. What you don't hear Dana do is talk about things that are irrelevant. And, of course, being involved with Jake Paul and Jake Paul making fighter pay, you know, this cause celeb. I think it's inevitable that he was going to say something, frankly. I think that was par for the course, man. Par for the course. So I, it doesn't it, – I, 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 I take it as a sign that uh, Showtime is a um, doing quite healthy. I think he would only say something – if they were doing like really, 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 really bad or uh, really well in a way that, you know, somebody he didn't like was doing something well, which is to be expected. I mean, Bob Arum tosses shade and everyone else. Like they all do it to each other. You know, everyone does it. Um, but you, you can't argue they're doing quite poorly. Um, you can make complaints about Bellator ratings. That's fine. Um, and some of their boxing ratings, I think, since the pandemic have been down, although those are steadily coming back over time but you know the Jake Paul stuff has been huge business and they Canelo's going to fight on November 6th like that's going to do monster business so like you know what can you say uh <laughs> funny question about Valentina How did Holloway drop Volkanovski twice in two rounds and outstrike him through three rounds and still lose? I don't think... I could be wrong about this. Um, let me double check. I don't think that um, fight metric counts those as actual knockdowns. Did you know that? Let's look at this. Now, I'm not... You guys know I love fight metric. Like, this is not me in any way being like, can you believe these stats? No one should believe them. Quite the opposite. Um, I think their stats are incredible, but I do wonder, I, I don't quite understand that. So yeah, so in the Volkanovski fight, over the course of 10 rounds, he is Max Holloway is not credited with a knockdown. Um, that didn't really answer your question, but 
I do think it was it's worth pointing out. It's an interesting question. For all of Ortega's improvements on the feet shown in the zombie fight, he still relies heavily on the hand fighting, the lead hand fighting as a tool. Since Max, who's overall better at working off of the hand fight, largely got punished against Volkanovski for using the same tool, what can Ortega do to make sure he doesn't suffer the same fate? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't really know what his team is going to do. I have a feeling that his team is... Like, if you just let Volkanovski get going in the way that he does, you're going to run into a, just an absolute metric ton of problems. So the question is, can you intercept it in a way where you can disrupt it, or can you disrupt it by getting in front of it? That's really the question... That, that's the operative challenge, really, that I think Ortega has, is this guy, once he gets cooking with this, it's not, you, can, you might not get stopped or anything, but you can't win against that. So how do we disrupt it, or how do we stop it before it starts? Um, I leave that to his very capable coaches. We'll do one more. Here's a great one. Why does anyone in MMA care about Dylan Dennis? <laughs> He's had two MMA fights and hasn't had a competitive jiu-jitsu match in years. He is currently unimportant in the space. Well, two reasons. One, he is famously friends with someone who's maybe the most famous person in our sport. And secondly, for a time, he was a very important figure. Dude, I lived through and remember super distinctly when he was part of that Marcelo Garcia brown belt all-star team, he was out there, him, Manchur Kara, uh, Jonathan Satava, a bunch of them. Uh, I think Mateus Denise was a brown belt at the time, too. They had like six or seven of these guys. And they were going up to tournaments. And, you know, the Dan Death Squad was doing their thing, too, but they were all exclusively no-gi. This was a lot of gi stuff. And, dude, Dylan Danis and these guys, they were wrecking shop on everybody at every tournament you could dude if they were in there competing you were just guaranteed if you got five marcelo garcia brown belts who are part of that all-star team all five are going to win world titles through brown belt but then when they got to black belt things begin to really come apart a little bit and i don't really understand the full story obviously as you guys know marcelo booted mantra Kara and booted um dylan satava had some success at the black belt level denise did really well at the black belt level and there were some other ones as well. Um, so some of the, the the translation from black to brown belt was just uneven for a lot of them, which can be common. That's in no way scandalous. But, dude, once he got to black belt, like, I'll never forget this. At the, was it the 2017 ADCCs? When I say never forget, I don't remember exactly what year it was, but I think it was 2017. You could argue, yes, because it was the year where, um, where uh, Gordon got gold and silver, not gold and gold. Um, you could argue even though Dylan lost his match, he gave Gordon his toughest match in any win that he had. Um, but he hasn't won at the black belt level anything meaningful that I'm aware of. Um, he's not won Pan Ams. He's not won Nogi Worlds. I'm not sure if he's won any super fights that are of all that impressive. He's certainly not won the Mundials or the Brasileiros or the Euros or... 
any uh, the various cups that take place in Middle Eastern countries in the gi or no gi. He has just been something of a celebrity fighter. And when Connor was hot, he was hot. I actually find it kind of interesting that Connor's suffering something of a relative decline, and so is Dennis to an extent, right? Um, it, both reputationally and obviously he's not even able to get into the cage. He also is suffering from a knee injury or a leg injury of some kind. Like, it's weird how their stories are somewhat paralleling each other. But basically, like, the gimmick has come to an end. You control people. Not to an end. That's that's silly. But its influence is waning because you can do all of that f- under basically a couple of conditions. One, you're just really good at trolling. And he's pretty good at it. He's pretty good at it. But the problem is, like, even Gordon's kind of tiring of it. Like, you know, because Gordon can call him out. But uh, Dylan has a bigger following. So Gordon can't really get a response from Dylan. So even though Gordon would absolutely wipe the floor with him. Uh, he just can't get, you know, it's not really a back and forth in that way. And then the other part of it is like, you could keep it going if you also had some wins to back it up and, you know, some nice moments, but dude, you're getting choked out by cops at bars and then you've got, you know, a terrible hair dye job. I mean, it's just, you know, I interviewed him years ago. Go look at this piece. I think it was 2014. I interviewed Dylan Dennis before he was even with Conor McGregor. And I was asking him about the return of the prominence of the guillotine to MMA. I think it was called the um, rise of the guillotine, something like that. Because the guillotine had a lot of importance, and then people kind of got used to it. And then there was this rejuvenation of it from jiu-jitsu, and then eventually made it w- its way into MMA, where they had reconstituted it with arm in and then high elbow and all the various iterations they got to make it better. And so I knew Dylan Dennis had, was really good at the time. I think he was still a brown belt at the time. And I interviewed him because I knew who he was. And this is long before anybody else had ever heard of him. Um, or, you know, uh, apart from people who were just paid attention to competitive jiu-jitsu, I should say. And he was nice. He was friendly. He was smart. You know, um, although you could tell even then he had ambitions on, like, attention. Because he was like, hey, dude, what do I have to do to get on uh, MMA Hour with Ariel? And I'm like, I don't fucking know. Ask Ariel. Like, <laughs> kind of a question is that? I don't fucking know. Um, so you could tell he had designs on getting bigger, but you know, when your coach kicks you out and the guy who you were kind of attached to is suffering a relative decline and you're injured and you haven't competed and you're just kind of out there trolling and it doesn't, it, 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 it loses its, its appeal over time. Uh, you know, to say he is unimportant, I think is a little bit strong, but to say that he has outlived or outstripped the curiosity due to the fact that nothing in real life ever seems to match it. I think that has begun the reconciliation process. Yes. All right. We got to get out of here. So let's do this. Subscribe even here to morning combat, even though this won't be here anymore. Cause if you missed, if you missed the uh, message at the beginning of the video here, yes, the live chat is coming back. It is coming back to my personal channel. It will continue. But it will no longer be here, but we have things replacing it. We will announce either tomorrow or Monday. I'm not sure which. Um, the first of which will actually will be here on Monday. I think you're going to like it. I think you're going to be happy with it. Okay? All right. Thank you guys so much for watching. I appreciate it. If you want the live chat in the future, go to my personal channel, youtube.com slash Luke Thomas, because until then, you bitches are going to have to stay frosty. <laughs>